Mic on? There we go. Good morning. Well, before I pray, a, a couple of words of introduction on this psalm might be helpful. I think you can tell even from uh, Gretchen's reading that this is a fitting psalm as we approach Holy Week and a, a fitting psalm here towards the end of uh, your celebration of this Lent season. Psalm 22 was written by King David in reflection upon a significantly challenging event in his life. Uh, we don't know for sure what it was, but it very likely could have been in reflection upon the season of his life when he was fleeing from King Saul, uh, the angry king of Israel who wanted to kill him because God was taking away the throne from Saul and giving it to David. And as we come to this psalm, uh, there are actually two different frameworks that I hope you'll be able to keep in mind throughout our time together this morning. Uh, and these two frameworks are important uh, in and of themselves, but it's also important that I mention them because we can sometimes pit them against one another, even unconsciously. And the first one is that this psalm is a prayer that God has given to you to pray. It's a prayer that God has given to his people for their good. And secondly, this psalm in a special way points us to Jesus Christ. So I hope we'll see both of those things this morning. Would you please uh, pray with me? Oh God, we need your help as we come to your word. We need your help every hour. Uh, there is nothing that we can do without you. It is in you that we live and move and have our being. And yet, as we come to your word, beautiful and majestic as it is, recognizing that it is a sharp sword and a fiery hammer that's able to pierce to the division of soul and marrow and break our hard hearts, we know that without your Holy Spirit, we'll leave here an unchanged people. So we ask that you would send your spirit now, that we would see our Lord Jesus, and that we would be changed because of it. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I can still remember the day when uh, my dad told me that my Nana had died. I was driving on a long road trip with my wife, Amanda. Uh, this was before we had kids. And Amanda was driving, and I got one of those ominous text messages. Uh, maybe you've gotten one like this before. My dad said, son, call me as soon as you can. Now, I knew that my Nana was not doing well, so even when I received that text, I, I guessed the news. I'm convinced that my Nana uh, prayed for me every day of my life. I grew up in South Florida, and my Nana and granddad lived in the Austin area of Texas, so we didn't see them all the time, but whenever we were together in person, she went out of her way to teach me about the things of God. I can even remember during one particular visit when she would offer me small amounts of money to memorize new passages of scripture. Uh, she was a woman who loved me and loved the Lord and wanted to give her love of the Lord to me. I could go on and on telling stories about my Nana, but amazingly, this Bible 
uh, that I have with me today that I often read from when I'm reading with students and when I'm teaching is, is a gift from my Nana to me. It has a message from her in the front. So you can imagine how I felt uh, in the car driving with Amanda when I received that text message and then finally called my dad and, and the sad news was confirmed. Everyone in this room has experienced something like what I did that day. Maybe you haven't lost a close relative at this point in your life, although for most of us, I imagine, uh, that's unlikely. But if you haven't lost a close relative, you have experienced uh, rejection or betrayal by someone that you've loved. If you haven't experienced rejection or betrayal, you've probably experienced some kind of weakness or helplessness in the face of some seemingly immovable obstacle, whether that was a conflict in your marriage, a health diagnosis, a personal sin struggle. If you haven't felt weak or helpless, you've certainly felt the deep shame as you've dealt with the the repercussions of your own sin or the sin of someone else against you? Where do we turn in these dark moments of our lives? I believe that God gave us Psalm chapter 22 in part to answer that very question. He gave it to us so that we could know where we can turn in those moments, so that even in the hardest circumstances, in our moments of loss and shame and pain, we can know where we can turn. We can turn to God's promises and ultimately to Jesus. So as we consider this psalm together this morning, it's a big psalm. Uh, Gretchen did a great job reading it. It's a big psalm. We can't unpack the whole thing. Uh, but I want us to see two things in particular as we look at it big picture. First, I hope we'll see the cross as we focus on verses 1 through 21, and second, the crown in verses 22 through 31. So I mentioned just a moment ago that this psalm is both a prayer that any of us can pray and that in a particular way it points us to Jesus Christ. And in these first 21 verses, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if you picked up on it, it's almost eerie reading words that were written a thousand years before the death of our Lord describe with such vivid detail some of the circumstances of his death. So in these first 21 verses, we're being pointed in particular to the great mountain of Jesus' suffering, kind of the, the summit of which is, of course, his death on the cross. So I want us to just look at maybe a sample of these as we march through. Uh, Start with verse 1. It's a good place to start. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If those words ring familiar in your ears, it's likely because they're the words that our Lord Jesus spoke as he was hanging on the cross. He took this prayer of David and made it his own to express the feeling of ultimate abandonment and forsakenness on the cross. Next, look at verses 7 through 8, where we're reminded of the Roman soldiers and those who passed by the scene of Jesus' crucifixion who mocked him. Interestingly, the, the gospel writers 
don't give us a ton of detail about the physical pain that Jesus would have endured on the cross, but they do draw our attention to the shame and the rejection and the mockery that our Lord experienced for us. Look at verse 15. Here we get a picture of the incredible dehydration of the cross. Remember, one of the few quotations we have from Jesus while he was on the cross in the gospel accounts is as he was hanging there, he cried out, I thirst. Verse 16 and 17 are quoted in the New Testament about Jesus, whose side was pierced by the Roman soldiers to ensure his death, and whose bones were not broken on the cross. Now, you might know that this is significant because it was common practice in Roman crucifixion for soldiers to, almost in an act of strange mercy, to, to break the legs of the victims of crucifixion to speed up their death by asphyxiation. But Jesus, as he hung there bearing the weight of the sins of all of God's people, he died more quickly than was usual. So his legs were not broken and his side was pierced in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Now, we could keep going. That's just a sample. In verse 18, we get a picture of the Roman soldiers dividing the clothing of Jesus as he hanged nearly naked for us. These verses 1 through 21 again and again and again point us to the suffering of Jesus. It's a worthy passage to reflect on as we approach Good Friday and then, of course, the hope and victory of Easter. And seeing this prophetic picture of the cross written a thousand years before Jesus' death is impactful in and of itself. And if you're here this morning and you are exploring Christianity in some way, uh, you're interested but you're not sure about this whole Jesus thing, I want what I'm about to say to be maybe the thing that you take away with. Because at the heart of the gospel is the cross of Jesus. And on the cross of Jesus, we see that our God came to be forsaken so that we could be welcomed. He came to be crushed so that we could be made whole. He came to cry out, I thirst, so that we could be satisfied. In, in other words, in summary, he came to be treated in accordance with our sins so that we could be treated as God's beloved children. Now, this is the gospel that we need to be reminded of week in, week out, day after day. Jesus took the wrath of God for us so that we could receive God's blessing and God's smile. But these words also contain wisdom for us in those very moments of life when we don't know where else to turn. In those moments like when I got that text message from my dad or whatever this looks like in your own life. Where do we turn in those dark moments? Well, Psalm 22 trains us, actually, to hold on to two different sets of facts that we often pit against each other but need to be held in tension. There's actually a kind of intentional tension here in our passage that isn't really fulfilled until Jesus comes, and you might feel an existential, an experiential, an emotional tension in light of what I'm about to say, because the two sets of facts that we need to hold together are the reality of our suffering and the faithfulness of God. Now, as soon as I say that, 
there's a chance that some of you in this room are tempted, and I I honestly don't blame you because I've been there, uh, to roll your eyes a little bit. Because if you're anything like me, there's probably been a time in your life when you worked up the courage to share with someone that you love and trust something really hard that you were going through. And they responded with something that was technically true and incredibly unhelpful. Maybe you were struggling with anxiety or depression, and, and you shared this with someone, and, and they responded, and they said, I'm sorry, that, that sounds really hard, but remember, you can cast all your anxieties on Jesus. Or maybe you shared about something really hard that's been done to you, something that someone else did that harmed you in some way, and someone responded, oh, that's tough, I'm sorry, but remember God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, I don't want to impugn the motives of these people. And if I'm being honest, I've also been on the advice-giving side of that dynamic before. So I, I do say this with humility. And I also recognize that the things that are spoken in those moments are often true. But why, why does it hurt us? Uh, why does it feel like it's unhelpful? Well, there, there might be different reasons for that, but it's often because in those moments, someone is responding to our pain with a platitude. They're responding with something that's true, but it's almost like a theological stiff arm. It's a way for them to keep us and our pain and our suffering at a distance, and that's why it stings. And I mention that because, friends, as we consider our Lord Jesus, his cross, and later his resurrection, we have proof in this psalm and in history that God never comforts his people from a distance. He never lobs truth bombs across a fence at us because Jesus came to stand in ultimate solidarity with us. So God, when he comforts us, he comforts us in his nearness. And in his nearness, we're reminded of his faithfulness that takes a particular shape in this psalm. Even in the moment of the experience of ultimate forsakenness on the cross, what does Jesus say? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, some have pointed out, perhaps rightly so, that Jesus doesn't claim God as his father in that moment. And and that might be significant, but I think in the context of this psalm, what what we also ought to see is that in that moment, Jesus is still claiming God as his own. Because that language of my God, it's covenant language. It's the language of the special relationship that God has with his people. It's a claiming of God's promises, even in the middle of our deepest darkness. The following verses... in in verses 3 through 5, were pointed to God's faithfulness to others in the past. In verses 9 through 10, the psalmist recounts God's faithfulness to himself in the past. And here, again, this psalm is a little bit like training wheels for us. It's teaching us what it means to turn to God in our dark moments. And one of the big takeaways for us is we need to learn individually and together as a people to rehearse God's faithfulness together. 
to remind ourselves, to actually speak to one another about the ways that God has shown up in the past to ancient Israel, to the early church, to, to believers like my Nana, and also in the past in our own lives. And when we do this, we're able to be pointed to the only real source of durable hope in our moments of confusion and disorientation and suffering. And that is the strength of God and the nearness of God. We need both of those things together if we're going to have hope. Verse 19 is an appeal for God to come quickly, to come quickly to aid the sufferer. It's an appeal based on the assumption that God can do something about our circumstances. It's an expression of faith even in the middle of our pain and confusion in the strength of God. Verse 11 puts it plainly. It says, be not far from me, for my trouble is near and there is none to help. This is an appeal for God's presence, for his nearness, even in those moments when it feels like our suffering is more real than the strength and the nearness of God. But this psalm reminds us that our God is always our strong and near Father. If he was strong but not near, he might inspire respect or fear from us, but he couldn't comfort us or offer us his love. On the other hand, if God was near but not strong, he might be able to offer us some kind of temporary consolation in the moment, but he couldn't actually deal with the, the biggest problems that we face, our sin, our suffering, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But God isn't a strong but distant dictator, and he's not a near but powerless friend. He's our strong and near father. And as we prepare to pivot now to the second section in this psalm, which points us to the resurrection of Jesus, I want to say almost ahead of time that Jesus' resurrection from the dead is proof that God will never ultimately abandon any of his children. That gives us hope when we suffer, when we watch our loved ones suffer, when we feel like our pain and suffering is nearer to us than God himself. Jesus is risen from the dead, and that's good news to dwell on. But the, the way of the Christian life is not just the way of the cross. That's what we, we've been focusing on a lot so far, right? Jesus, Jesus died on the cross, and what does he say to his disciples? He says to take up your cross and follow me. So much of our suffering, it doesn't always feel directly connected to our discipleship to Jesus, although it sometimes is, but what we're doing when we suffer as Christians is we're participating in the suffering of Jesus. We're carrying a cross that he's called us to carry, and that's important to know if you're considering Christianity this morning, uh, if you've been a Christian for decades and you feel like, man, why is this so hard? Jesus told us from the beginning, take up your cross and follow me. But the Christian life isn't just the way of the cross, it's also the way of the crown. Remember what we confessed earlier in the service, that our Lord Jesus, after he died, he was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven. 
He was seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's coming back one day to judge the living and the dead. The Christian life is the way of the cross, but it's also the way of the crown. And we see this in this psalm because verses 22 through 31 actually in a number of ways mirror the first section. They mirror it, but they twist it. There's a, there's a glorious subversion. The mocking of the passerby in the first section gives way to the celebration of the second section, to uh, praise in the congregation, as we'll see. The experience of temporary abandonment back in verse 1 gives way to public proclamation of deliverance in the second section. And this is, this is important for us to remember in, in the long journey of the Christian life. It's a long obedience in the same direction. It's important for us to remember that the normal thing in our lives is that there would be a movement from lament to deliverance and thanksgiving, from suffering to glory, from death to resurrection, from the cross to the crown. The Christian life is also the way of the crown. And I want you to see as we focus on this last section for just a few minutes, three different ways that Jesus offers us a share in his crown, a share in his glory. He invites us to join in a worship service, to join in a meal, and to join in a party. And uh, by the end, I think we'll see these three are very closely related, perhaps even uh, three different perspectives on the same wonderful reality. First, look at verse 22. Uh, it begins with a picture of Christ leading all of God's people in worship to the Father. Now, you might be thinking, Ethan, how do you know that that's about Jesus? Uh, well, it's not because I'm clever. It's because Hebrews chapter 2 quotes this psalm, quotes this very verse to make the point that Jesus leads God's people in worship. David also, in the Old Testament, the author of this psalm, he led God's people in worship. He had a significant role in the assembly. But Jesus is the greater David. He's the ultimate worship leader. And almost as an aside, that's worth chewing on for a moment, isn't it? When we gather here on Sundays in Jesus' name, we're not just singing to Jesus, and I mean, consider even some of the songs we're singing this morning. We're not just singing about Jesus. We're singing to Jesus, about Jesus, with Jesus. He leads us in praise. I think if we really chewed on that, it would, it would impact the way that we worship. I wonder what it might look like for you if you really wrestled with and delighted in that reality that Jesus is so central to everything that we do together. He invites us to a worship service to delight in God the Father with him. Second, in verses 25 and 26, we're told that Jesus, again, is the, the ultimate uh, one being pictured in this psalm, although it has implications historically for David and for you and me as believers. Jesus would perform vows. That's the language of that section. And that those who are afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Now, what's the deal with that language of performing vows? 
Well, in the Old Testament, there were a number of different kinds of sacrifices that were a part of ancient Israelite worship and were central to the very possibility of having a relationship with God in the Old Testament. And one of those sacrifices was called the peace offering. And there were a few different circumstances or occasions at which someone might choose to offer a peace offering in the temple. But one of them was in connection with the performance of a vow. Uh, One example from the Old Testament is Hannah. When she prays and asks God for a child and God gives Samuel to her, she vowed to present Samuel at the temple, to dedicate him to a lifetime of serving the Lord. And when she brings him to the temple, she offers a peace offering. Uh, But the beautiful thing is that this peace offering, not always, but sometimes was opened up to be enjoyed by the poor by the impoverished, by those who could not afford to bring such an offering. And the peace offering was a meal. It was a meal that was shared between God and his people. Part of the sacrifice would be burned up to God. Part of it would be consumed by the priests, and part of it would be eaten by the believer who brought it, signifying table fellowship between God and his people. Isn't it amazing, brothers and sisters, that our Lord Jesus became our peace offering for us? That he didn't offer up an animal, but he offered up his own body so that he would nourish us, body and soul, so that we could be invited to table fellowship with the God who made us and loves us. Jesus invites us to a worship service. He invites us to a meal. Finally, in verse 29, we get here a picture that kind of brings those two previous themes together. We get a picture of a religious festival, of one of the feasts of ancient Israel, which those feasts were many things, but one of the things they were uh, is they, they were a party. It was a party with worship and a meal. And it was open, this feast in particular that's being described in Psalm 22, it's open to everyone who would come. Think about it. We're told that this feast, this coming feast, would transcend ethnic boundaries. It's for Jews as well as Gentiles. Verse 27 says that all the families of the nations will come. It transcends socioeconomic boundaries. It's for the rich as well as for the poor. Verse 29 indicates this when it says that the prosperous and those who go down to the dust, the poor, the impoverished, the dying, that together the prosperous and the poor would eat this meal together. This coming feast, this party, this festival would transcend even time or temporal boundaries. It includes not just the present generation, but also future generations or posterity, as it says in verse 31. If this feast is so inclusive, so transcendent, so open in its invitation, then that means that there's nothing that should hold you back from hearing the invitation of Jesus Christ today to come, whether for the first time or the thousandth time to have a relationship with God, that we can have a foretaste of this coming feast that we'll talk about some more before we close, and that we can be assured that we'll be there at the last day. 
There's a saying that we often share in the RUF world. I wouldn't be surprised if Nick uh, used it back in his heyday. Um, that the gospel, the good news about Jesus, shows us that no one is so good to be beyond the need of God's grace. But no one is so bad to be beyond the reach of God's grace. The universality of this feast reminds us of that. And it also ought to move us outward towards others. If this feast is so universal, then that means when you become a participant in the feast, when you uh, receive your invitation, you're also enlisted as an ambassador. God is calling you to go out into the corners of your neighborhoods, the corners of your workplaces, the corners of Hinsdale, and the corners of the University of Illinois to invite men and women and children to come in and to experience relationship with Jesus that includes the covering of our guilt, praise the Lord, and also an experience of joy and life with the God who made us and loves us. The feast that the psalm pictures is something that's picked up again and again in the Bible. We see it in the prophecy of Isaiah. We see it in many of the parables of Jesus where he often speaks about the great banquet. And it's picked up finally and perhaps most beautifully in the final chapters of Revelation where it is called the wedding supper of the Lamb. I mentioned earlier that when I received that text from my dad to ultimately hear the news about my Nana's passing, that I was on a road trip uh, with my wife. What I didn't mention is that we were driving uh, to a wedding. We were driving to the wedding of some dear friends from college, and there was going to be worship. There was going to be a meal. There was going to be a party. Now, the fact that I was headed to that wedding that I was so excited for, it didn't take away the pain of losing my Nana, but it did put it in perspective. And friends, if your trust is in Jesus this morning, whether you feel it right now or not, you are on your way to a wedding. So that means you can recognize that your suffering is real, but it's not ultimate whether you're dealing with your own sin or the sin of others. The day is coming when Jesus, as he himself says, will gird up his loins and serve us at the table. When we will share in an ultimate way, not only in his cross, but in his crown. My prayer is that this would strengthen you on your journey. That you, even now as you prepare to come to the table, would, would have many foretastes of this feast to come. And that you would walk faithfully in dependence on God until the wedding supper of the Lamb is finally here. Would you please pray with me? Oh Jesus, we thank you that you came to die in our place. That you came to do what we could never do. To fully obey the Father to be perfectly pleasing to him, and then to offer yourself up in our place, that we would not be forsaken, 
but we would be welcomed and blessed, that we would not be crushed and thirst, but made whole and satisfied. We love you. And we pray as we walk the path that you've placed before us, the way of the cross and the way of the crown, that you would continue to be with us by your Holy Spirit, just as you've promised. Help us to love and serve and worship you in all things. And may you strengthen us on our journey, even as we continue to consider your word. We pray this in your name. Amen.